been focusing on the foundations of mindfulness, the places where we set our attention, put our attention within the classroom of our life is what the foundations of mindfulness are. In the early years of the Buddha's own journey, it was very much a journey that was kind of directed away from these foundations. Initially, his journey was very much a kind of path of transcendence, we might say, where his life, really, his body, his mind, his feelings, emotions, really everything that was part of his life was treated as something of an obstacle. And it was very much the kind of spiritual, cultural ethos of that time that the way to enlightenment was to really um, somehow suppress or transcend everything in life that was considered to be an obstacle. So certainly in the early years of Siddhartha's practice, it was very much a path of, in a way, disconnection. How do I get away from my mind? How do I get away from my body? How do I get away from my life? Even named his son, Rahula, Fetter. <laughs> Which is really not very kind, actually. <laughs> you can imagine if you were named Fetter. You had to go through your life being called an obstacle. And really the turning point, the turning point in the Buddhist journey was that movement from transcendence and disconnection towards connection and imminence. And it was a turning towards everything that he had previously fled from. So in a way it was a kind of surrender of aversion, a surrender of resistance. Probably two, if we might use those word, the word obstacle. The biggest obstacles in our practice and in our life. Aversion and resistance. I don't like it. I don't want it. I want something to be over. And yet the whole kind of key of mindfulness, the whole key of insight and awakening is to somehow really explore those dynamics of aversion and resistance that really so much make us suffer. That's essentially their effect, and that's a kind of primary insight, that when I'm aversive, when I'm resistant, I suffer. Nobody is happily, or very few people, are happily aversive. I mean, some, sometimes we enjoy our aversion temporarily because it makes us feel self-righteous or, you know, a little bit holier than someone or something else. But it tends to be a very temporary, a very fleeting enjoyment before we actually discover that aversion is really a place of suffering. So the third foundation of mindfulness is a contemplation of chitta sometimes called the contemplation of the mind, but very much remembering in this tradition and practice, the mind and heart are not treated or regarded as somehow distinct and separate entities. That this word chitta covers everything 
our thoughts, our mental states, our intentions, our volitions, our emotions, all of them are arising in chitta, consciousness. This is clearly a very significant and crucial aspect of mindfulness practice. Because in a way to contemplate our mind is also to contemplate our world. If we sense how much the mind is really the forerunner of all things, the forerunner of our thoughts, the forerunner of our speech, our choices, our acts, our likes, our dislikes, our preferences, then to contemplate the shape of our mind is to contemplate the shape of our world, to see that these are not separate or distinct. What the Buddha said is that what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And the shape of our mind really does, in a very real way, become the shape of our world. We see that if we dwell in aversion, well, the world doesn't look that pretty to us. In fact, everything seems primed to almost stoke that aversion, to stoke that uh, resistance, the judgmental mind. If we dwell in agitation, the world looks very agitated. If we dwell upon thoughts of resentment, animosity, then indeed the world looks really quite bleak. The next moment, another mental state or another thought pattern can arrive, a feeling of being bereft or somehow deprived, lonely. The world seems to just be flavored by that perception and it becomes the shape of our world. I think all of us probably appreciate the power of our mind, our thoughts, our emotions, our mental states in our life in the way that they can seem to have the authority to dictate our sense of happiness or unhappiness moment to moment. A pleasant thought arises, a moment of elation, an unpleasant thought dwelt upon becomes a moment of depression. If we look at our world, we see the power of thought, the power of emotion, the power of mental states. How much of our world is shaped by, by anger or by fear or by greed. How much of our world, too, can be shaped by altruism, by compassion, by generosity. The Buddha once said that there is nothing so powerful as a thought unguarded. It's another way of saying there is nothing so powerful as a, th as a thought that has life without mindfulness. Because that thought will almost always 
take us into the field of reactivity. So learning to be present skillfully with our mind, our hearts, our mental states, our emotion, is really learning how to be more skillful in our acts, our speech, our choices, in our world. Buddha said, let a thought be born of love. Let our thoughts be born of love for the welfare, the well-being of all beings. Now just as our body is our companion through our lives, so too is our mind. And like our body, our mind is a place where the sense of I, sense of me, lands very often and very powerfully. I am my thoughts. I am my emotions. I am my mental states. It is often within our mind that we find the descriptions for the sense of me. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm fearful, I'm angry, I'm lonely, I'm depressed. You can see the process of identification happening over and over again. And in truth, this is what we explore with mindfulness. Not just the thoughts or the feelings or the emotions that arise, but the power of clinging, the power of this sense of identification that so uh, casts us into this place of identity. That is what identification does. It, It creates the I am. What our minds dwell upon is, of course, a very powerful signal to where that identification is happening. The Buddha said that the mind that obsesses becomes agitated, and the mind that is agitated is far from freedom. He was speaking about obsession here. He was speaking about identification. Of course, spoke about obsession a little bit differently than even we use the word, where we often think of obsession as being these, you know, almost eternal, contracted repetitions. The Buddha spoke about obsession as repeating the same thought more than once. So, <laughs> it's a slightly different sense of what obsession is and what identification is and what clinging is. A thought without identification actually has no authority to dictate our well-being. An emotion without authority, the authority given to it for identification, has really no authority to dictate our well-being. And this is just something very useful to bear in mind as we see the endless rhythms and the endless swings our hearts and minds can go through in a single day. Rather than telling ourselves this feeling shouldn't be happening or this thought shouldn't be happening. To really have the interest, the willingness to explore the dynamic of identification. The dynamic of I am. The purpose of mindfulness, we might say, is to undo clinging. 
The purpose of mindfulness is to undo identification. Because without the clinging, without the identification, all of us sit and walk and live within a changing mandala of thoughts, feelings, emotions that simply arise, they visit, they pass. It is the clinging that, of course, keeps things remaining. And I would not want to underestimate the challenge and the invitation of really exploring clinging and identification. It's not just, you know, that easy that we say, oh, that's clinging, oh, well, that's done. Let's move right on now, you know. <laughs> it's a pretty powerful phenomenon. And, it, you know, there's a place where clinging is very important to me. You know, without identification, without clinging, I don't even know who I am. I don't even have a description for myself. I don't even have, find it even hard to have a description for everything around me. So we can see, even though clinging may be very, very painful for us, that identification can be very painful for us. It's only painful for us when we're clinging, find ourselves lost or identified with the unpleasant. Actually, when we're very identified and clinging to the pleasant, it really doesn't feel that, that painful, does it? Oh, that's a great fantasy. How can you tell me that's suffering? I'm enjoying it so much. You know, oh, that's a wonderful thought, you know, a wonderful plan or, or idea. How can you tell me that that's suffering? You know, I'm having a really good time here planning all day, you know, or speculating all day long. So, you know, this is kind of one of the basic kind of uh, dilemmas in this whole exploration. You know, that clinging is at times important to me, to me. But it is also the cause of suffering. And I think that is a place where we, where we really need to explore, to see that we cannot actually negotiate with identification. That's, you know, an important insight. We can't decide that we will only identify with the pleasant and we will not cling at all to the unpleasant. It's not possible. You know, the, the, mind, the, world, the mind is just not that cooperative. That it will say, oh, fine, great, you know. I'll only identify with pleasant thoughts today and the unpleasant ones I'll just let go of. Wherever there's identification, we are actually kind of feeding the demon of identification, whether it is to the pleasant or to the unpleasant. And, you know, part of the exploration of identification is actually looking at how important it is to me, how it really creates this sense of I, this sense of me, moment to moment, those changing descriptions we have through our day. So the Buddha suggested this contemplation in the face of identification, in the face of clinging, wherever it occurs, to contemplate, this is not me. This does not belong to me. This is not who I am. It's a kind of interesting contemplation. Whenever in the face, whenever there is continuity, whenever there is clinging, whenever there is identification, regardless of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, to be able to bring in that, those questions. This is not me. 
It's just not belong to me. This is not who I am. It's not a way of dismissing or pushing away or further exercising our aversive powers. It is actually really just pausing in the face of continuity and to question. What happens with that emotion? What happens without that thought? If it is not bound by clinging. Within the Satipatthana Sutta, one of the refrains that is repeated over and over again in the contemplating of the body, of feeling of the mind, is the encouragement to abide independent, not clinging to anything. That abiding independent doesn't mean abiding disconnected. It means abiding independent without the sense of me being formed by clinging being equally present in the presence of all things and yet not holding onto anything. The world is full of thought, the world is full of emotion. The world perhaps will always be full of thought and full of emotions. Some of them are helpful, they're wholesome, they're healing, they're liberating. Some of them are unhelpful, they are unskillful, even unwholesome. What is the distinction between those two? The thoughts, the emotions that are helpful are those that lead to the end of suffering. The thoughts, the emotions that are unhelpful, unskillful, unwholesome are those that lead to the perpetuation of suffering. This too is an inquiry very much encouraged in this tradition. In fact, the Buddha tells a story at one time where he sat down and he said, suppose I were to put my thoughts into two areas, those that lead to suffering and those that lead to the end of suffering. He said, then what would my response be? In, the, in Tibetan, they actually have two ways of regarding emotion, two words for regarding emotion and thought. One is happy and one is sad. So another way of approaching the same, the same contemplation. This thought, this emotion uplifts the mind, leads to happiness. This one makes the mind sad. It's kind of interesting because it takes away the sort of judgmental feel for me. You know, oh, well, fear is sad. Oh, well, it's just sad, you know. Anger is sad. It is sad. Hmm? Hatred is sad. Greed is sad. Hmm? It's just sad. It's just, you know, we're not happy, we're sad. It's kind of interesting. Then, then we would say, well, actually, where is the path directed? It was certainly not directed towards deepening sadness. It's not directed towards deepening the unwholesome. And I think the great liberation of this practice is more and more to understand that there may be choices. There may be options. There's a story of a little boy in a nightmare, you know, and he's having this nightmare about being chased by this terrible monster. And it's one of those awful nightmares that the faster the little boy runs, 
the closer the monster keeps getting until it's breathing down the neck of the little boy. And then it jumps on him and flattens him. And the little boy starts shouting, Help, help, what should I do, what should I do? And the monster says, Why ask me? It's your dream. (laughs) It's your dream. It's our dream. It's my dream. One of the ways the spirit of mindfulness, of course, is one of befriending. Befriending the sad. Befriending the unhappy. Befriending the unskillful. Without that befriending, in truth, there really aren't any choices. Because without that befriending, the pushing away, the resistance, the aversion, is in truth all a manifestation of the clinging. It's all a manifestation of already being identified. I am and I don't want to be. So the befriending is actually learning to to make room for the monster. So Bhagavan said, you know, who is my friend? He said, my mind is my friend. So say, who is my enemy? He says, my mind is my enemy. And what we're really doing in this practice is cultivating a mind of friendliness, a mind of friendliness. Part of that is learning to have some discernment within what happens within our mind, bearing in mind here I am also talking about our emotional world. I'm not making that distinction. To have some discernment. You know, to know that there are so many different layers of thinking. Some of them just you know, fleeting flickers in the mind. Same with emotions, just fleeting flickers, you know, of aversion or irritation or excitement. Sometimes what happens in our intuitive consciousness is a kind of dwelling that is really more of an entertainment-motivated dwelling. You know, I'm trying to replace one mental state with another, usually in entertainment dwelling. You know, I might feel a little bit bored or a little bit restless. So I entertain myself. I mean, our minds are remarkably creative in the entertainment world, we might say. You know, we can sit there and fantasize, plan, speculate, dream, imagine. I mean, sometimes our entertainments are really much more mundane, you know, but they still are somehow keeping the mind going, a sense of control, a sense of being occupied, going. Someone said that our mind is incredibly interesting until we look at it closely. And we say, it's really not that interesting. (laughs) How many new thoughts have we had today already? (laughs) If you're fortunate, one. (laughs) You know, most of them are reruns. And it's kind of like, imagine if that was your life, you know, going to reruns of kind of sitcoms over and over again, you know. know, Another rerun of Neighbors or Emmerdale or, you know, some... You know, even the most interesting sitcoms, we had to watch them again and again. But we don't actually get so tired of our minds. We actually really still find new delight in that rerun. <laughs> but sometimes it is just entertainment. Sometimes our thoughts are creative. 
They're quite insightful. But to know with insightful thoughts, they actually really don't need that much entertaining. They actually don't really require much dwelling. You know, sometimes we have a you know little opening, a little glimpse of insight. You know, and boy, we sure don't want to lose that one. You know, so we'll rerun that one for ourselves five million times. You know, until it's not even an insight anymore; it's become a new belief system. Sometimes our thoughts are repetitive. They're the real insistent visitors, the ones that are loaded with, you know, uh, injury often sense of injury, sense of hurt, or fear, or uh, threat, or anger. And those are often our most sticky, sticky places, and the places that actually require the most kindness. Not about rerunning the story, but the kindness that really, really is willing to befriend the sense of injury inwardly where we've felt hurt or rejected or undermined or threatened in some way, those tend to be our stickiest, stickiest element. But it's, I think, very important to understand in the mind that without some energy of either intention or grasping, thoughts and emotions simply do not last. They arise and pass like sounds, like sights, like smells, like sensations in the body. It is only intention or grasping that gives continuity to thought and to emotion. Sometimes there is intention. We, you know, if you make a plan or need to make a plan or reflect on something, there is an intention there that keeps the thought process moving. It is quite conscious. And it is also not bound. Because you can see when thought is really kind of explored with clear intention, the moment the intention is dropped, the thought pattern also drops away. Very often the energy is more unconscious, the one energy of grasping that creates the continuity that is the energy for keeping something going. And it's very important to know the difference between those two. To be aware of what we are feeding. And also to be aware of the link between mental states and the contents of consciousness. You know, when there is a mental state of aversion or anger or excitement or warmth, it, that mental state has offspring, we might say. The mental state is the parent of the content. The mental state is the parent of the thought. If we are aversive, if there's a mental state of contractedness or aversion, it is not going to have offspring in terms of thoughts that are loving and generous. You know, we don't have an aversive mental state and then have thoughts of, oh, isn't life wonderful? You know, we have thoughts that are really primed almost to see and focus on the imperfect. So sometimes when there are repetitive thought patterns, instead of trying to kind of really wrestle with those thought patterns, it is often more useful to kind of lift up the blanket just a little bit 
and to really look at what is the mental state underneath them. What is the state of my mind? That is helpful because if you can see that there is a state of mind that is really predominant, sometimes you, you have a capacity to ask what does it need? What is absent? What does it need? Mental states arise and they feed thoughts. Thoughts in turn reinforce the mental state. That It's a kind of loop. You know, again, just taking the example of aversion or irritation. The thoughts arise that are kind of aversive or primed to see that which is irritating. The more that we're primed to do that and feed into that, the more that it strengthens the mental state. I mean, you can see that build up often happening through a day that one is feeding the other, strengthening, reinforcing the other. And then often what happens out of that loop is we get a view. We have a view of the world. We have a view of ourselves. I am like this. You are like that. The world is like this. We've arrived at a conclusion or a view through this looping that is happening. And it is, it is so useful to be aware of those places of almost landing arrival where we say, I am, you are, the world is. And to le really learn to cultivate a little bit of creative disbelief about our views. Hmm? When we see the word I am, we might turn it into am I? You know, that is the contemplation of this is not me, this is not who I am, this does not belong to me. When we hear the view arising, you are, we might turn it around a little bit and say, are you? Always? <laughs> you know, are you always irritating? <laughs> are you always unmindful? When we hear the view arising, you know, the life is like this. The world is like this. Just to bring a little bit of questioning in. Is it? To start to loosen, loosen that kind of grip of the clinging, the grip of the grasping. So much being mindful of what our, our mind is doing moment to moment through the day. Wise attention is born of wise intention. Unwise attention, which is the attention of grasping, is born of unwise intention. And when the Buddha spoke about wise intention, he really put it so simply. He said there are three wise intentions. The intention of loving-kindness, the intention of compassion, and the intention of renunciation or letting go. Actually, you know, that pretty much covers the spectrum. We really don't need any more intentions than that in how we greet ourselves, in how we greet our, our world, in how we greet the moment, in how we greet whatever is arising in our thoughts and our emotions. The intention of loving-kindness the intention of compassion, the intention of renunciation or letting go, really pretty much takes care of everything. 
really creates that mind of friendliness, a mind in which all things can be met, in which all things can be greeted and held under the umbrella of mindfulness or within the light of mindfulness. Thank you. Just um, a, a couple of just small announcements. Um, my interview times for tomorrow have changed, so if you're on my Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.